Uh, The talk tonight is a mindfulness practice overview, and I'd like to begin with a um, poem by um, a Bushman from um, Botswana, and his name is Cabo, and it's called XAM Premonitions. The alphabet of the Bushmen is written in their bodies. The letters talk and vibrate. The letters move the body of the Bushmen. It orders everybody else to keep quiet. He himself is absolutely still. Then he feels his body softly palpitating on the inside. A dream talks false. A dream can mislead you. But the premonition talks the truth. The the pulsing awareness which says, somebody is coming. Especially the pulse in a wound. And you walk, and the wound begins to palpitate. Then you can send the children to go and see Grandpa is in the footpath on his way to you. That is what you feel in the wound. The wound tells you that. Or if your ribs start palpitating, then you take your arrows because you feel the short black hair of the ribs of the springbuck, a deer, if you climb Brink Hill. Watch closely among the trees and green spruits because the springbuck you have already seen with your body and you feel the sensation of blood on your thighs and calf as if you are already carrying the springbuck home on your back, as if the springbuck is already bleeding down your thighs. That is why I always wait silently for the words of my body. I feel it in my feet, how the animals are sniffing around the hut. I feel it at my skull if they cut the horns of the hartebeest. I get a sensation down my forehead all along my nose like the dark stain of the springbuck snout. I feel my eyes swelling out like the stains of the springbuck's eyes. When I feel something tingle like fleas, I know my body has seen an ostrich. We lie down in front of the huts. We lie down on the stretched out hills of Brink Hill as it looks as if we are sleeping, as if we are taking a nap. But we are reading our bodies. We read everything which is moving on the plains down below the holes at the back of our knees, get a feeling, and then we wait. And then everything comes to us. It's pretty open sensitive, awareness of body, awareness of feelings, awareness of mind, thoughts, emotion. That sense that everything comes to us, that we don't have to work hard towards something but to receive life as it is. Um, This is a lot of the mindfulness practice and the way that that can be expressed, that we're not reaching out, but we're not reaching in, that we're, we're truly centered, um, awake, and relaxed. You know, this is, 
This is the awareness that we call mindfulness. So last night I was alluding to this um, kind of awareness that I called soft readiness. And that implies that there's a readiness for anything to happen, meaning that the truth is, is that anything can happen. Another way to describe mindfulness is that we have this intention to understand our experience rather than to judge it. And when we go through even five minutes of practice on the first day of a retreat, never mind a day, we see how much we judge. How much we judge. And we have this little critic in the back of our head that's like assessing every few minutes, oh, that was a good, that was a good breath. That was, <laughs> I didn't really watch that breath good enough. Uh-oh, there's a pain in my knee. Uh, you know, this commentary of judgment, oh, I'm thinking too much, oh, I lost, got lost in thought, oh, you know, I ate too much, I didn't eat enough, you know, it, just this endless series of judgments. Um, what the mindfulness practice is meant to help us do is to get in touch with a purer motivation for being here on the planet. And that's, you know, it takes this kind of slowing down and giving ourselves the time and space um, for this mindfulness to come to us. This intention to understand rather than to judge. When we start to get a sense that this means that we have no agenda, (laughs) that whatever is happening we relate to equally, so that if there's restlessness we relate to it in the same way that we would a moment of loving-kindness or a peak experience in meditation. You know, we start to relate to the uh, quality that we bring to brushing our teeth in the same way that we would when we sit down and notice the movement of the breath. I had bronchitis recently and... um, one of the people on staff at the Forest Refuge lent me a big pile of Calvin and Hobbes um, cartoon books. And there's um, one that, I, <laughs> I don't know if I'd call it inspiring, but it was really interesting in terms of the difference between uh, this balance of relaxation and alertness and inertness. And he's like sitting in front of the television and it's like stomachs hanging out and he's drooling and his eyes are sort of half, you know, awake, and he's watching, he's been watching television for hours, you know, and he's just totally vegged out. That isn't mindfulness. You know, there is a level of relaxation, yeah? Um, And (laughs) so when we say we want to veg out, you know, there is a level where we really want to veg out, but there is something missing in terms of... um, the relaxation, which is this alertness. So mindfulness doesn't mean that we're passive. You know, there is a, you know, we often mistake this teaching around mindfulness, this, you know, letting things come to us as, as passive, but it's actually incredibly alert, incredibly awake, 
as well as relaxed. That's why it's so um, difficult for us to come to that kind of balance. It takes practice, practice, practice. I described in the metta retreat that we did a Sayadaw that um, lives in Upper Burma near where we've been teaching um, outside of Mandalay at a monastery that's um, about 1,500 years old. I mentioned it last night in my talk as well. And um, Usumana, since he has learned Burmese so well, um, is a great person to walk around the Sagain Hills, which is known as the spiritual heart of Burma, and we get to meet some wonderful um, teachers. And the Happy Saito, we nicknamed him the Happy Saito, was actually a teacher named Usi Lenanda's teacher. Usi Lenanda is a teacher in California. So the Happy Saito is quite old at this point. Um, and kind of just totally delightful. And I, I noticed when we first went into this uh, monastery that the monk that is his attendant has a perpetual smile on his face. It just, it never comes down. It's just, he's just, that's like, from being around the happy Sayadaw, he's just happy. You know, you can't help it. It's like infectious. Um, and when we first went to see him, I asked him a bunch of questions that I wanted to ask him. And one of the questions was around uh, the four foundations of mindfulness. And the Buddha taught uh, four foundations of mindfulness, meaning what I'm describing, this soft readiness of attention, this intention um, not to judge but to understand ex- our experience. And it, this practice is meant to first start like we've been doing today with the breath, with the body, with our postures, and start to include sound. But then it will start to include mind and contents of the heart and mind. And so it's really meant to include anything that can happen in the universe. It goes from at first feeling like we have to concentrate on one thing, like the breath or sound, to learn. It's a learning how to concentrate. It's a learning how to come to stillness so that we can move from that kind of still pond. First, it's, we go from that scattered, neurotic mind to more of that still pond to really being able to jump in the flowing river of life. That's what it means by anything can happen because life is moving very quickly. Um, So usually in any kind of Buddhist tradition um, and culturally whether it's Zen or Tibetan or Theravadan, Burma, Sri Lanka, When you go to a teacher, usually you will have, at first, one of the foundations of mindfulness emphasized. And then over time, you start to be able to include the rest. So you start, uh, in this tradition, usually you start with the body, and then you move to feelings, unpleasant, pleasant, neutral feelings. And this this doesn't mean um, emotion. It means that with each moment of consciousness, simultaneously, there's a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral mental feeling that's happening actually moment to moment in a human mind. Um, And then we move to 
you know, first is kaya, body, second, vedana, feeling, third, citta, mental states, and the next dhammas um, is, are all the general objects of attention that can happen. So I asked the Sayadaw, the happy Sayadaw, um, which foundation of mindfulness he practiced or what he practiced, and he just started laughing. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> you know, he's always laughing. And he said, oh, I used to practice this foundation or that foundation, and now it's like I'm living in an orchard. And each moment is a different orchard, and I just live with this complete abundance. You know, that's some pretty wonderful thing to say about mindfulness practice. You know, just to get a sense that that's what we're practicing, this learning, this relaxed, awake attention with each moment of our life so that we come to awakening, abundance, orchard. The orchard is awakening with each moment. <laughs> but I loved his capacity for just describing this experience of um, being with how things are as an orchard. You know, and that there's this limitless orchard and abundance that we're capable of living in by being with things as they are. I saw um, on a public television uh, show, I wasn't sitting totally vegging out. It was public television. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, there was a, a really interesting show about an artist who spent a long time learning how to make rope. And she went to these shipyards um, outside of Boston and spent long months learning how to make rope the old-fashioned way. And then she um, made a tightrope, and she practiced learning how to walk on a tightrope. And they, you know, she videotaped herself walking on a tightrope. And um, she discovered that to stay in balance on a tightrope, you actually have to come to terms with being out of balance all the time. So that being in balance is accepting being out of balance. And that's how you stay on the tightrope, by just adjusting to this change. And I see that so much as this practice, that if you really go from stilling the attention with the, like the pond and you're willing to be mindful of our moment-to-moment life experience, it will be like being on the tightrope because one is going, if you just try it for five minutes of your practice, you'll see that as you anchor with the breath or with the body and sound, if there's enough stillness and you let go of control of your attention to momentary um, awareness, you'll, you'll have a thought, a body sensation, maybe a sound, um, and it requires this ability to be aware of a sound and then shift to the body sensation and maybe a thought, do you see how that requires a certain kind of ability to accept change, consistent change? So a lot of the practice is this ability to accept this constant change that we're living in.
the spiritual journey, this search for the truth of how things are, um, requires vast amounts of courage and inspiration. You know, being willing to face life as it's changing. You know, we can say that we like to understand change, right? But do we really, <laughs> do we really want to understand change? You know, it's not so easy for us human beings. Albert Einstein described his own search to understand the fundamental laws of the universe in this way. He said, The years of anxious searching in the dark, with their intense longing, their alternations of confidence and exhaustion, and final emergence into the light. Well, that's, it's so beautiful to, to hear him describe these, these experiences you know, that we all go through on the spiritual journey of searching in the dark, acknowledging the intense longing, the alternations of confidence and exhaustion. Certainly you must have experienced that today. I mean, you know, this is tiring. You know, and we go up and down and up and down. And we, we, the energy goes down, we have doubt, you know, we hit the bottom, and then we wait, and the courage comes back, and we get confidence, and we start in again. I think sometimes in the spiritual journey they describe one dark night of the soul, but certainly I think there's more than one. <laughs> You know, it's a little strange how it's described as one. So the art of meditation is learning how to concentrate the attention, which brings a kind of rest away from the change. So fixed concentration or or anchoring the attention with the breath is meant to be a rest from dukkha. You know, really take that in. It's really meant, you're meant to be kind of pausing and stilling and bringing about an ease, tranquility, which is meant to build up the energy so that we can have the courage to face change. And it's never a feeling like that you're going backwards or that there's something, you know, like that you're, you know, doing something wrong, if, you know, the first few days of a retreat, usually there's a necessity to anchor a lot, anchor a lot, anchor a lot. And just the simplicity of beginning again and beginning again and beginning again. Without that real um, kind of deep push or um, questioning about what's happening. You know, when there's, when there's just that need for rest, it's like learning the art of being on the planet very lightly without having to entertain ourselves. You know, when you get a little bored, a little frustrated, a little tired, you know, there's a tendency to just think and think and think. Um, part of learning how to anchor with the breath, part of learning how to anchor with sound or with body is learning how to be here, you know, without getting to the bottom of truth with this intensity overnight, it's, it's just uh, learning how to rest. And if you can trust that process, 
there'll be times when there is enough rest and there'll be a natural kind of inclination toward being interested in what's really happening. Interested. You know, so you go from just kind of synchronizing your attention with the movement of the legs or the movement of the breath to suddenly, what is the breath? That's investigation. That's the shifting from the concentration to the mindfulness where we're not um, caught in the word breath. We're not caught in the prison of conditioning. We start to peck out of that prison cell of conditioning by going, well, what is my experience of the leg or my foot or sadness or the breath free from past ideas about it? That's shifting into mindfulness practice. That takes a certain amount of energy to be interested. And if you have a few seconds of that and then it kind of closes down, that's a lot. It's, it's trusting that process again, that, that, oh, I need to dress the attention, you know, open up, rest the attention. It's, it's an art to, to learn, to accept that both of those are important practice and good practice. So if you've practiced a lot and you need to anchor, it's not like <laughs> you're regressing <laughs> or failing. I mean, we tend to really like it when we can just let go of control and let moment-to-moment experience happen. But we can get attached to that. And it's very humbling practice, yeah? I mean, if you go through a day of practice, if you're not humble by it, it's, you know, you're not paying attention. You know, it's really, really humbling. And it, it, over time, one starts to accept more and more this art of kind of resting, pause button, and then opening, getting lost, resting, pause button. And then also accepting when um, you get lost in fantasy land. You know, eventually you will come out of it. <laughs> really. One of the ways that I like to describe mindfulness with a little more detail is that sometimes you can just see it as remembering to be here. You know, the first part of a part of a moment of mindfulness is just that it's called recollecting ourselves. It's a recollection. It's just remembering to be here. And if you wanted to keep practice very simple, you're either not here <laughs> or you're here. And the um, more you don't judge that, the less you get identified with it. It's not like, I am here, I am not here. It's just being here and not being here. And it's okay. So that moment when we remember to be here is huge. And it's important to get that any time you remember to be here, that plants a seed for another moment where you remember to be here. But you can't control it. And that's what's humbling. It's like you'll have that moment where you're here, and then you might get lost in a thought. But that moment when you're here really gives you the present moment. It gives you your life. You're alive. But life is moving. It's changing. And so if, if you get lost again, it's, 
it's not your fault. You know, try not to judge it. You get lost. You, you notice it. You come back. And I have 100% faith in that process. It's just the more you do it, the more you'll remember to do that. The less you do it, the less you remember to do it. It's just kind of how it goes. So in that remembering to be here, um, the first part of that is recognition. You know, so sometimes making a soft mental note is really great. You know, you can go from being totally asleep at the wheel, sort of like Calvin in front of the television, to, oh, hearing is happening. So being able to go, oh, hearing, compared to, again, a normal, scattered, neurotic mind, this is huge. That's how you get here. Or rising, or in, noting the movement of the breath. Or, oh, sadness. You know when you recognize it, it's just like you've come, it's that emergence into the light that Einstein is talking about. It's huge. Don't underestimate it. That ability to go from being in the dark to being here. Oh, loneliness. You can be caught in a thinking um, story for five or ten minutes and then realize that it was really just loneliness that you didn't experience. You know, so that's how powerful that ability to recognize what happens is. And then <clears throat> another aspect of mindfulness when we recognize what's happening is accepting what's happening. And again, that's another huge shift. You know... Really, when we suffer, it's when we're resisting what's happening. And you know the difference between loneliness being there and resisting it. And then we get caught in wanting someone, you know, and the whole thing. All that getting lost in a story about wanting to be with someone is really avoiding the experience of loneliness. And so a lot of the practice is also starting to recognize resistance and not try to push it, but just, oh, accept, oh, I don't want to be with this. And allow the heart to close up. It's okay. You don't have to feel the loneliness if resistance is what's happening in the present moment. So you start to learn that being with the truth of things is being with how things are happening in the present moment. And if loneliness happens and then resistance happens, being in the present moment is not trying to get back in time to the loneliness. It's dropping into where you are, which is, in that point, it's resistance. And that's okay. It's like you don't have to go back. (laughs) And sometimes if you're with that, the resistance, sometimes it could be that you just go back to the breath once that happens, or sometimes you do go into maybe something deeper like loneliness, or it could be um, missing sadness or something. But it doesn't matter. What matters is that ability to accept just what's on the surface of the truth of your experience. You don't have to dig deep. (laughs) That's like that poem where the... um, poet is saying to to just lay still or to be still and everything will come to us, especially through the body. And then recognition, acceptance, interest. 
When we shift to interest, we really start to feel happy as human beings. And you can't force it, but interest, it's like, it's so wonderful to be interested in pleasure and pain and neutral, how life is again. So this is the first night you're probably not incredibly interested in knee pain yet. I'm not suggesting that that's where you might be. But again, over time, you, you start to see that what is happening, it doesn't matter. What matters is that we become interested in the truth of what's happening. And that that interest in being awake, alive, feels wonderful. And please know again that interest requires a certain amount of energy, and that's why we practice renunciation on a retreat. You know, when we just receive the generosity, say, of the cooks, that, you know, we don't, we're not going shopping, we're not cooking the food, you know, we're not doing big things of laundry, we're not getting email, talking on the phone, working. The reason for that, that simplicity, is so that we, we settle in, we rest the mind enough to get enough energy to start being interested in our experience. So you might not be experiencing that that much, but you might today have had glimmers of it, or maybe you had lots of glimmers of it. But interest will come and go. Recognition will come and go. Acceptance will come and go. And then the last one, non-identification. You know, you can think of these as like the word rain, recognition, acceptance, interest. Non-identification is then also another deepening of this quality of awareness that's not judging, but intending to understand. So when non-identification is present, it means we're not taking what's appearing personally. You know, and that's... When you, when you get into the soft mental noting at times, you'll see that we're not encouraging you to say, I am hearing, or I am breathing, or I am walking, or I am sad. The, the noting is meant to be a very soft whisper in the mind that helps us bring our attention to what's happening. So hearing is meant to be a very light whisper, and then it takes a delicacy to receive the sound, for the attention to meet the sound. And when your attention can meet the sound, that's a huge accomplishment. And when your attention can meet the movement of the breath, this is a huge accomplishment, because they're moving very quickly. That's why it's hard, because sound is moving very quickly. Sight sound, smell, taste, touch, and thought is moving so quickly. That's why the instruction in, you know, the morning, you'll see that we'll, we'll be on the body for a long time before we shift to instruction on thought. It's only because, you know, we do a gradual instruction, uh, and thought is much harder to be mindful of. Non-identification again, means that we're not taking our experience as um, self-referential, as a separate self. And that takes the deepest understanding. 
but it's it's sometimes I think it's relatively easy uh, easy for us to understand what it means not to identify with something, not to take it so personal. And there are levels of understanding of not taking our experience personally. I think we've all heard the expression being in the zone. You know, but we've all had these peak experiences in life where we're really, really connected with our experience, but also not attached. And that, that's a peak experience, and it's what brings us back to retreats. It, it's what encourages us on the spiritual journey. Technically, that means that our attention um, is very participatory. It's in the experience. It's not a cold observation. One is connected, but one's understanding the experience from the inside of it. And that is a peak experience initially in practice. Uh, so usually when we're practicing, we're often stepping too far back and we'll feel like it's more of a cold or distant observation. But trust it. You know what? It took me years of practice to be able to articulate this. You know, we're, We tend to be on that tightrope where we'll connect really and we, we sort of get so close we get inside it and we drown we get lost in the experience. And then we might get detached and sort of look at our body from really distant or, you know, we open up and look very distantly, but we're not, we lose touch, we're not connected. That's happening moment by moment by moment. So sometimes we're too far back, sometimes we get so close. It's okay. When they come, when that detachment and connection come in balance, we get a feeling, oh, this is like what it's like to be in the zone. And unfortunately, we think that that's how it should be. And then we reject 99% of our life. So the Vipassana retreat is designed to face that the peak experiences come and go and that we can learn to accept our life. And that, was, that took me a long time to accept. <laughs> I kept thinking, if I just kept working hard enough, I'd be in a peak experience all day. So as we move from the concentration, the stillness, to more of the mindfulness, we're moving toward rest and stillness to exploration. And this requires investigation, a questioning wisely what the truth of our experience is. And it leads to intuitive insight. It leads to understanding our experience from our own experience, not from a distant, cold, intellectual analysis. So you'll find yourself dropping into your experience, getting caught in an analysis. That's okay. Just notice it as, oh, Analyzing, analyzing, it's okay. And see if you can drop back down into your actual experience. And as you shift from conceptual knowledge to direct experience knowledge, we're passing into wordlessness, which is um, when you start getting into true silence. So this is that when you start going beyond the conditioned words, you're shifting into inner silence 
so we start to see that the truth cannot be described, it can only be experienced. And it's really a mystery. And we can talk around this stuff, but we all know the sacredness and preciousness of this silence and this true mystery. You know, and it is what we're here for in life, is to really touch the truth and to do whatever we need to do to access that. And you can see as humans that it really does take a lot to access that. And it's worth it. I mean, I was willing to die meditating for many of my initial years of practice because I cared so much about the truth. So there's no beginning or end to investigation. And um, when we move from conceptual knowledge to this deeper intuitive knowledge, sometimes it's uncomfortable. There'll be like a buildup of energy, and it's like a balloon building up. And those of you who are here for metta, you'll already be experiencing it. There was a lot of energy in the hall last night. I've never felt a hall so incredibly powerful and still on the first night of a retreat. It's exceptional. It's a joy to be teaching you. You know, it's really great um, to be with you. And there'll be times when the energy will build and there's a tendency to use up that energy thinking, yeah? Redecorate the house, you know, write the book, you know, landscaping, whatever we like to do, you know, we're going to do it for a while because it's more comfortable and familiar than allowing ourselves to, to not know what the breath is, to not know yet again what sadness is, to be willing to experience something totally free from the past. So that's what we're doing, and you can see that it takes great courage and energy to drop in like that. And it's okay when we can't. You rest the attention, you're here lightly. But there will time, be times when you'll drop in. We call it dropping in. <laughs> um, and I'd like to uh, read a story that um, describes that dropping in. This is from The Golden Key by George MacDonald. And it's a story of... Um, it starts with a boy that finds this golden key but he doesn't know what the key is for or what it is to. Um, and he goes on a journey with this key, and then he meets, his name is um, Masi, and then he meets this girl, Tangle. And it's like this lifetime spiritual journey. Um, it's a fairy tale, but it's very applicable to the, um, what I'm talking about right now. And so they're, they're very old. They've journeyed and journeyed, and they're very old at this point, but they don't know it. Um, how old they really are. Um, And they get separated for a really long time. And this is a passage from when Tangle has been, you know, just it seems like lifetimes that she's been traveling by herself. And she's met guides along the way. And she's with the old... She's with the old man of the earth, and she has to find the old man of the fire. Um, the old man of the fire is the oldest man of all, and he's a little child. Um, so 
she's with the old man of the earth and she's asking him you know the way to where the where the golden key will work and he's and the old man of the earth says ah that i do not know i only dream about it my, my oh. <laughs> I only dream about it myself. I see its shadows sometimes in my mirror. The way to it, I do not know. But I think the old man of the fire must know. He is much older than I. He is the oldest man of all. Where does he live? I will show you the way to his place. I never saw him myself. I wish I could see that country too, but I must mind my work. So he led her to the side of the cave and told her to lay her ear against the wall. What do you hear, he asked. I hear the sound of a great water running inside the rock. That river runs down to the dwelling of the oldest man of all, the old man of the fire. I wish I could go to see him, but I must mind my work. That river is the only way to him. Then the old man of the earth stooped over the floor of the cave raised a huge stone from it, and left it leaning. It disclosed a great hole that went plumb down. That is the way, he said. And she said, but there are no stairs. And he said, you must throw yourself in. There is no other way. She turned and looked him full in the face, stood so for a whole minute, as she thought, but it was a whole year, and then she threw herself in headlong into the hole. That's dropping in. It's It's when we're right, we're willing to let go of control and our, our need to know things intellectually and to just feel the breath just as it is, very lightly, you know, what is it? And being willing to not know what it is, that's beginner's mind, and that's mindfulness practice. Albert Einstein said that the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. And... Is there a limit to that? Is there a limit to what we will know scientifically, analytically? I love to read um, some of the latest physics. There's a book by Brian Greene called The Elegant Universe, and he's into string theory. Um, And it's really wonderful to read about. Now, the latest stuff is that there are 11 dimensions, you know, and um, I love reading. Let's see. String theory are vibrations of microscopically tiny loops of energy where fabric of space tears and where the fabric of space tears and repairs itself and all matter. <laughs> I mean, isn't that great? You know, just <laughs> you know that people are thinking about stuff like that. I love it. But this guy, you know, I love this book because he said he finally admitted that there might be a limit to comprehensibility, that there maybe there is a mystery. And that comes so close to our practice where 
we go from thinking we know and seeing that we need to know because that makes us feel secure. And yeah, you know, you learn, okay, this is a Michelle, these are glasses, that's Susan, you know, that's a light, there's a Buddha. You know, we really like that feeling that we know. And then we go dead. We don't pay attention because we know. And then we lose our life. And so this practice is meant to help give us the courage to be willing to be here, free from the past and future. It requires willingness not to know, willingness not to know. And over time, we can learn to come to stillness through not knowing. Just that willingness to have that soft readiness for anything to happen. It's a beautiful practice. I was on a retreat. I was teaching a retreat um, just before I came here. And there was a young man at the retreat that wore a t-shirt every day. And it said, (laughs) there's two people here that were at this retreat. It said, I don't do mornings. And it was just every, you know, we'd all get up, you know, we were all living in this house, you know, all of us together. And I'd get up, and I just loved that t-shirt. It was just like, oh, yeah. It's <laughs> he just it was like he wrote the mornings off, you know, and it's sort of good to lower your expectation to that level. <laughs> um, and even him, <laughs> after the days went by, he started getting into it and getting into it. You know, it's like have some patience if you're new to this. Have some patience because you can be here a bit and then be light about it. Be here a bit, be light about it. And if you trust that, it can grow. If you try to force too hard and push, you know, it'll backfire and then you'll have less and less energy. So try to have that trust of the process. And ultimately, um, Where do I want to go? I want to move quickly here. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> First nights, I don't like to overdo it. <laughs> um. Ultimately, not knowing is so wonderful. It's like thinking that we know is so painful. It's so painful not to be open to how life is and to be interested in whatever is arising, whether it's loneliness or happiness or boredom. It's really our spiritual birthright to start to be interested in the truth of how things are and to know that the investigation into that is endless and the happiness and peace that come from that is really endless. 
so I'd like to end with a quotation that I love from um, Krishnamurti about this um, being fully present within our bodies and hearts and minds, centered, open, vulnerable, but not lost in what's happening. You know, this, this balance that requires being willing to be imbalanced each moment and finding that deeper place of truth. To be actually sensitive, not about something, but just to be sensitive, to be vulnerable, like that new spring leaf, which was born a few days ago, to face storms, rain, darkness, and light. Let's just sit for a minute. May we all come to experience living in this orchard of mindfulness and experience the abundance of happiness and peace possible for us as human beings. <laughs>